From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the pancreas is relatively rare, but often deadly. The pancreas is an organ in your abdomen that lies horizontally behind the lower part of your stomach. It secretes insulin and also enzymes that aid in digestion. Unfortunately, pancreatic cancer typically spreads rapidly to nearby organs, and it is seldom detected in its early stages. On today's program, we'll discuss pancreatic cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll have tips to get you moving to start the new year. And an expert from the CDC will weigh in on the sleep crisis in America. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Cancer Institute, more than 50,000 patients in the United States were diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas in 2016. The pancreas is an organ that lies behind the lower part of your stomach, deep down inside. Its job is to secrete enzymes to help with digestion and hormones that help manage your blood sugar, and that would be insulin. It's an important organ with several important jobs. Unfortunately, cancer can develop in the pancreas, and when it does, it typically spreads rapidly to nearby organs, and it is seldom detected in its early stages. While pancreatic cancer ranks as about the 10th most common cancer, it's the third most deadly. Only 7% of those diagnosed with pancreatic cancer live more than five years after their diagnosis. But new cancer drugs and new, more aggressive treatments are offering some hope to pancreatic cancer patients. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic general surgeon and pancreatic cancer expert, Dr. Mark Trudy. Dr. Trudy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Tell us uh, your story about how you got interested in treating pancreatic cancer and studying it. Uh, well, probably like most physicians, they have some sort of a personal story. Uh, back when I was in college, my father was diagnosed with pancreas cancer, had kind of classic symptoms of weight loss, abdominal pain, uh, and eventually became jaundiced or became yellow because blockage of his uh, bile duct. Uh, at that time, he underwent kind of standard therapy, was diagnosed with a tumor, uh, went to the operating room, had a suboptimal operation, had a prolonged hospital course, never went on to receive any chemotherapy, and within six months, he died in my arms. Typical story, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, and this was 20 years ago, and that still happens on a daily basis today. How old was he? He was uh, 56 when he died. Were you interested in medicine and pancreatic cancer before uh, his probably death? Probably not at that point in time. So that was oh. still, you know, in college trying to figure things out. But I think subconsciously that probably drew me to medicine and then ultimately into my current career. And so you you graduated from college. Where did you go to medical school and, and yep. then what happened after In that? Chicago, Chicago Medical School. Then I came here for residency at Mayo. After I finished my general surgery residency, I went to MD Anderson in Houston for a three-year surgical oncology uh, fellowship where I focused in, in pancreas and liver tumors. And then I was recruited back here uh, as a, a hepatobiliary and cancer surgeon. MD Anderson, is that a good place? Did you have a good experience? Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to train. You bet. <laughs> it's almost as good as here, isn't it? Almost. Yeah. Always given the needle. He can't help it. Yeah. So what causes pancreatic cancer? Have we figured that out yet? No, not quite. Unfortunately, the majority of, of cancers of the pancreas are sporadic, so there's no particular uh, uh, cause. 
there are some risk factors. Smoking is probably the biggest risk factor. There is a small percentage of patients that can have a higher risk of pancreas cancer, so they either inherit some uh, genes, so patients with BRCA mutations, those are associated with breast and, and uh, ovarian cancer, some patients with Lynch syndrome, and there's a, a subset of patients who have a hereditary form of pancreatitis that markedly increases their risk. But well, in general... What, what syndrome? Sorry. What uh, syndrome? Hereditary yeah. pancreatitis. Oh, but you said Lynch, Lynch syndrome. Lynch it's also associated with colon cancer and a variety of other tumors. Okay, so it's got you've probably got some genetic abnormality. Yeah, in a small fraction that. of patients, but the bulk, I'd say, you know, probably eighty to eighty-five percent of patients are sporadic. So, uh, smoking, though, the number one smoking risk is the number one risk factor. And uh, you, you talked, you briefly mentioned uh, the symptoms, and is it because that the that pancreas is so deep down inside that it that it's already grown a significant amount and probably also spread before it's discovered you bet. You know, there's a high correlation between stage of disease at diagnosis and tumor size. Unfortunately, most patients don't develop symptoms until the tumor is large enough, and at that point in time, the cells that are capable of spreading have already spread. If the tumors arise in the head of the pancreas and near the bile duct, those patients can present somewhat earlier, and they present with jaundice or yellowing of the skin. Tumors in the body and the tail of the pancreas typically uh, aren't diagnosed till late, and those typically are weight loss and back pain. And at that point, most patients are already metastatic. Is it the fact that it's just such a deadly cancer or the fact that it's not diagnosed that makes it so deadly? Uh, I think it's probably twofold. The one thing that makes pancreas cancer so deadly is its biology. It's a very aggressive form of cancer. It has lots of mutations, and it tends to metastasize at a much earlier stage than most other mm-hmm. cancers. Metastasize or spread elsewhere. You bet. So up to 50% of people at the time of diagnosis, we could already see on scans that it's spread to the liver, the lungs, or the abdominal cavity. So if we could come up with some sort of effective screening method, maybe it would... That would probably have the the best uh, long-term impact on survival if you could diagnose it early. Unfortunately, there's no good screening tests currently available. Obviously, that's a, an area of research that you know, Mayo and other institutions are actively working on. What would be, what's the direction it heading? Like a, a blood test or... Yeah, like any type of screening, some sort of a blood test, you know, measuring uh, uh, cancer DNA uh, in the blood. Or body fluids. Yeah, the key thing is, though, it's still a relatively low incident cancer. So right now, even though we may be able to detect it from a cost-effective point of view, screening the whole population. So right now, all the screening assays are done at higher risk uh, uh, patients, mm-hmm. those with multiple family members with pancreas cancer or some sort of genetic link. So if you fa- have a family history of pancreatic cancer, you're more likely, is that where you? Uh, so there is, in the general population, there's about a 1% to 2% risk of anyone in the general population of developing pancreas cancer. If you have one first-degree family member, that number jumps to about 4 to 5%. If you have two or more, then it's about you know 9 to 10%. So that's you know pretty dramatic. That's the risk of developing breast cancer at that point. So two or more family members, that's a, an increased risk. Those are patients we'd probably start looking at a little bit earlier. You have siblings? I have a sister, yes. Okay, and I presume she's alive and well. Alive and well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you've talked about uh, about the uh, the symptoms, and you and you talked about screening, which we don't have. But everybody's uh, there's a lot of hubbub about a liquid biopsy, meaning mm-hmm. you can take a sample of blood and not only determine whether or not the patient has cancer, but determine the site. Are, are we close to that? Are you working on that We have also? some new assays. You know, Mayo's currently developed. So 90% of pancreas cancers have a mutation in the KRAS gene, and that's something that it's pretty common. Uh, Mayo's now developed a new assay where we can measure what we call cell-free DNA or circulating you know, portions of that mutation within the blood. 
Uh, it's something we can measure. We're not quite certain how to use it. So right now, you know, we're doing some pilot studies to see how they can make some a clinical difference. Is that going to affect how we treat patients specifically? So that's kind of the, one of the exciting aspects that are new. Is most of the research on early detection or is most of the research right now on treatment? Uh, right now, most of the research is on treatment because we still have 50,000 patients every year annually that are being diagnosed. We have to come up with better ways to treat them. And that's kind of really dramatically changed basically since 2011. So for three decades, you know, prior to 2011, the way we treated pancreas cancer is patients, you know, have symptoms, they get a diagnosis. Unfortunately, most patients are already metastatic, and so they just got some palliative chemotherapy. Uh, the other 50% whose tumors we weren't able to see that it spread, we then classified them whether the tumor is localized to the pancreas, which is only about 10 to 15% of patients, or if it's grown outside the pancreas to involve critical blood vessels. Those tumors that were considered operable, uh, again, a small fraction of patients we would take to the operating room. We'd perform operations on them, which are uh, pretty complicated procedures. And then if they made it through and if they're in reasonable shape, we'd give them chemotherapy. We've done that for three decades. We've had no significant alteration in their outcomes. Uh, the reason being is that we know that most pancreas cancer patients, their, pro their tumor probably has spread. We just can't see it. And so how do you, uh, once you suspect cancer of the pancreas, how do you confirm the diagnosis uh, typically, and determine whether or not it's spread? Uh, so at that point in time, it's uh, high-quality imaging. You want to get good scans of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to see if there's any spread, and then you get a biopsy of the tumor in the pancreas to confirm it with the pathologist. And when it spreads, where is the most likely place it's going to spread? Most likely at liver, uh, followed by lung, and then the abdominal cavity. You can exfoliate into the abdominal cavity. And the survival rate, at least up until now, less than 10% at five years. It has been. That number is moving due to the uh, introduction of significantly more effective what we call combinatorial modern chemotherapy. That's had the probably most dramatic uh, benefit overall for all patients. Yep, we want to talk about that when we come back. You Time for a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio. We're talking to Dr. Mark Trudy, who is a general surgeon and a pancreatic cancer expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with Dr. Mark Trudy. He is a general surgeon at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, and an, also a pancreatic cancer expert. We've talked about the why of pancreatic cancer, and in fact, we still don't know. We've talked about uh, ways to screen for it. Oh, by, I should, by the way, I should mention that the number one risk factor is smoking, when we know that smoking isn't good for anything. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the symptoms, mostly uh, abdominal pain. It's usually diagnosed late because uh, it's so deep down inside and usually doesn't present with symptoms until it's already spread elsewhere. We've talked minimally about the treatment alternatives that are available, but we've got some hopefully new ones and better ones. And tell us about those, Dr. Trudy. So there's three main uh, modalities of treatment for pancreas cancer. One is surgery, which we typically uh, historically only provided to a small fraction of patients. Second is chemotherapy, which also traditionally has been limited to ineffective therapies, and then radiation therapy. And so the key thing, what's really kind of dramatically changed in this, we've gotten very good at doing these operations. Uh, we've managing to get patients out of the hospital with low uh, complication rates, low operative mortality. But again, uh, this cancer needs more than a knife. 
Uh, chemotherapy has pretty dramatically changed since 2011. Two uh, significant papers came out uh, showing the significant survival benefit of combinatorial chemotherapy, meaning multiple different agents have a significantly more uh, uh, effect on treating these pancreas cancers. And then radiation therapy has also evolved. You know, we have a proton beam, a variety of other ways to deliver it. The key thing is not which of these, it's how do we take what we have and apply it in the right sequence to get the outcome we're looking for. And I kind of compare it to my wife's chocolate chip cookies. She makes the best chocolate chip cookies. I have her recipe. I take the same ingredients. I put them in a bowl. I don't get her chocolate chip cookies. Why (laughs) is that? Because she knows the right amount of each ingredient and in the right order to put them in and in the right manner to get the outcome we're looking for. You really got to cream the butter and the sugar well. (laughs) And that's the key thing, and that's what we're trying to do here at Mayo is taking all these modalities that we have available, putting together in the right order to get the outcome. And what's the outcome? Everyone thinks, oh, we need an operation. We've been operating for three decades. It's not just the operation. The goal we're trying to achieve is to extend a patient's life with the best quality of life. Sometimes a big operation is necessary to get that goal. Sometimes a big operation is going to do just the opposite. So the order was do surgery, then do chemo, then do radiation. Is that what typically patients were? That's typically how it okay. it went. So what we're doing now is we're getting good staging exams. We're trying to figure out uh, uh, what's the best way to treat them. And currently what we're doing, we're using these chemotherapies Prior to anything, so right at diagnosis, we have a diagnosis, we give them the chemotherapy. And that's to treat the whole body, You right? bet, because in, in, we know most patients, they probably have seeds or spread of the cancer, we just can't see it. Sure. Uh, once we give the chemotherapy, we have to wait to have objectively measure whether it's working. If a patient's going to get chemotherapy, we have to demonstrate that it's effective. And that's where we also help with these blood tests and with our radiologists, because sometimes a CT scan doesn't show that the tumor shrinks. That doesn't mean it isn't working. A CT scan doesn't tell you if a tumor is alive or dead. So we're relying a lot on more on metabolic imaging, uh, PET scans, you know, high-quality PET scans that we have here. Once we can demonstrate a significant benefit of chemotherapy, we want to maximize that because that's going to be the biggest determinant of how, long pa- how well people do long-term. Once we complete chemotherapy, we then move on focusing more on the tumor, and then we bring in radiation therapy. The purpose of radiation therapy is to not only treat the main tumor but the surrounding structures so that those patients who ultimately go to the operating room have a higher probability of me performing a negative margin operation. What does that mean? So in order for an operation to be effective from a cancer point of view, I have to be able to completely remove the tumor without leaving cancer cells behind, and that's where radiation therapy helps. And you had mentioned the proton beam. Is that one of the uses? That's one of the modalities that we're using. After radiation therapy, then we then take these patients to the operating room. Now, traditionally, we've only operated on patients whose tumors were confined to the pancreas. What we've really done here, and we do more here at this institution than any other uh, center in the United States, is we operate on patients who are presumed stage 3 or unresectable, meaning their tumor grows outside of the pancreas and surrounds arteries and veins, which we typically would never operate on. Because of all the therapies they've gotten ahead of time, these patients now, we can offer them much more complicated operations, and our data would suggest that these patients are living significantly longer despite presenting with a higher stage of disease. So tell us about uh, going to the operating room and removing a portion, or uh, I presume in most cases, all of the pancreas. It, it, it's a difficult operation, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 a, a very it's hard difficult. to get to. 
It's a very difficult operation. Even a standard pancreas operation is pretty complicated. It has risks. And now when we add patients who are tumors extend outside of the pancreas and involve critical blood vessels, particularly arteries, uh, those risks kind of dramatically increase. Uh, you know, one centimeter in one direction or another may you know, require a completely different operation and a completely different set of, uh, of risks that uh, come into play. So these are truly uh, customized, bespoke operations. We've never done them before. There's no textbook on that where each case is unique. You obviously need an experienced surgeon. Yeah, well, multiples. We work with our vascular surgeons as well. So we're doing operations that have no specific name. And you, you can do it two ways. I mean, you can do an open operation, yep. or you can also do it through endoscopically or through a small telescope now, right? You bet. So that's the one thing that also Mayo's been leading in is doing what we call laparoscopic or minimally invasive pancreatic cancer resections. And so Is that, that harder? Uh, I mean, it, it, when you first started, it is harder, <laughs> but obviously when you gain the experience, you know, the benefit, like anything minimally invasive, is a quicker recovery. Well, especially because the patient then, since we're flipping around the order here, has undergone chemotherapy and radiation before they even get to surgery. So anything that uh, requires less recovery time is good. Yeah, absolutely. The key thing, it's a lot It's a lot easier for patients to tolerate the chemo and radiation prior to surgery than trying to subject them to that after surgery. Okay, so if we're flipping it around and surgery isn't the first thing that happens, mm-hmm. how is this showing in outcomes for patients? Uh, so we're seeing significant survival benefit. Now, you have to understand, you have to have a comparator. What are you comparing it to? Uh, what we used to compare it to is people we just didn't operate on. They just went on the palliative therapy, and those patients lived six months or less. So when we had no other therapies, we would just operate because that was better than nothing. The problem is our other colleagues in, in medical oncology and radiation oncology, they've gotten pretty good. So people are living up to one to two years without an operation. That's the standard survival with wow. the old method of surgery. So if we're going to add an operation, we have to do significantly better than that. So we're about to publish our data on patients who we call borderline or locally advanced. These are patients whose tumors typically would be considered inoperable. We put them through our protocol of modern chemotherapy, radiation, and then uh, a big operation. Many of these patients had uh, multi-vessel, multi-visceral resection and reconstruction, so much more complicated operations. And the average survival of these patients is four to five years. That's all of them. When we look at these patients, we could then subclassify them and we could determine who does better than others. Three things we found. Patients who got more chemotherapy prior to surgery lived longer. Those patients who had uh, a blood test where we measure a tumor marker, if that number goes to normal after chemotherapy, those patients do best. And probably the most predictive is when we take the tumor out, we have our pathologist look to see if there's any living cancer left. Those patients who we take the cancer out and most of it's dead or all of it's dead, those patients are essentially cured. And we could stratify about how many of those three factors people get. And if you get all three of them, those patients, uh, you know, we haven't even met our median survival. So it's way beyond seven years. Wow. It it's all sounds very promising. You know, it's a cancer that none of us want. What's the average age of the person who gets cancer? The average age is 71. Yeah. But 71. we're seeing even younger and younger patients, you know, 40, 50 years old. So. Well, there is hope. And thanks so much for sharing all that information with you us. Thank and you best of luck me. to you and your colleagues. Thank you. All right, Dr. Mark Trudy, general surgeon, pancreatic cancer expert. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have tips to get you moving in the new year. And later on in the program, we'll discuss the sleep crisis in America with an expert from the CDC. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Dry sinuses, bloody noses, and cracked lips. 
Humidifiers can help soothe these familiar problems caused by dry indoor air. Humidifiers can also help ease symptoms of a cold or other respiratory issues. But be cautious. Humidifiers can actually make you sick if they aren't maintained properly or if humidity levels stay too high. If you use humidifiers, be sure to monitor humidity levels and keep your humidifier clean. Dirty humidifiers can breed mold or bacteria. If you have allergies or asthma, talk to your health care provider before using a humidifier. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, the holidays are over, and it's back to the normal routine. But you get to come here. Not all bad. <laughs> I'm still unpacking from the move. <laughs> Forever. I'm yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> it's not fun, is it? No. Well, for some of us, the new year brings new goals and getting fit and losing weight. Those are high on the list of New Year's resolutions. It sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, whether your goal is weight loss or just feeling better and being being healthier, adding activity to your day will help you get there. But how to get started? And how do you stay motivated and avoid the common pitfalls? Here to offer tips to help you get moving is Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program physical therapist Danny Johnson. Welcome back to the program, Danny. It's good to see you. Thank you so much, Tracy. I'm very excited to be here. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Shives. So uh, everybody on New Year's Eve says, tomorrow, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start the program. I always just say in January. January. I don't expect the first. (laughs) Start the program, get fit, lose weight. Uh, So what would you tell them? How do they get started? Yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Shives. Thank you for asking that because that is on a lot of people's minds as we enter the new year. So there's a couple of things I always recommend to people, whether it be they haven't done exercise for a long time or they're not quite sure how to get started. Number one, obviously, we want to make sure you're safe. So if you've had any new medical conditions that have come up since you've been a regular exerciser, make sure you check with your doctor. Make sure that you know that you're healthy and safe to start an exercise program. Um, Number two, I always tell people have a plan. Very important to have a plan so that you know what your goals are. What are you striving for? Is it weight loss? Is it, uh, you know, you want to lower your blood pressure or just get in better shape in general? So have a plan with clearly defined goals. How many days a week are you able to devote to exercise? What does that timeline look like? Uh, So all of those things can be really, really important as you get started you know, making sure you're safe, having a clear and defined goal. Should we be thinking cardiovascular health or strength training? Or if someone is just coming into this, like, I am finally going to get started, yep. should they just start with whatever is most interesting to them? Right, Tracy, that's a great question. So at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, obviously, we really try to promote a well-rounded exercise program, which would include multiple things, strength training or what we refer to as resistance training. So that doesn't always include weights. It can include your body weight. It can include many different modalities. Cardiovascular training for your heart and your heart health and heart efficiency. And also mobility training, which can include things anywhere from stretches to yoga or or tai chi, pilates, any of those things. But we do realize also that that's not always realistic for people to do all of those things at once, especially if they haven't done anything for a while and they just want to start. So my uh, suggestion to people is what worked for you in the past? What do you like? 
uh, get started with a very realistic goal in terms of how many times you're going to get to the gym and what does that timeline look like. Uh, have a buddy that can hold you accountable for those goals. So, you know, all of those things can be very helpful. Uh, so just get started. Just get into the gym or start a healthy program at home. Just start. It can be small. You mentioned the importance of setting goals. So if somebody uh, on New Year's Eve said, I really need to lose 50 pounds, and they came to see you, would you say, well, let's let's be a little more realistic. Let's start with 10. Because I would assume if somebody wants to lose 50 pounds and they've only lost eight, they say, I can't do it. But if you if you have a lesser goal, is it important to kind of work at it from that angle? Yeah, Dr. Shives, you've really hit the nail right on the head. You know, it's just a perfect... Uh, thing to just get started because otherwise things can become really overwhelming really, really quickly. So we always try to uh, encourage people to start with a very realistic goal. You can uh, keep going and, and 50 pounds is a, is a wonderful thing to try to do if you need to do that. But we always say five or 10 pounds initially. You know, we always talk about, and I'm from the physical activity world, so extremely important as we try to, you know, lose a few pounds to get into better shape. But, you know, we also have to consider what we're eating and the holidays can be tough with that too. So again, you need to have a balance. And you need to really uh, strive for small, attainable, realistic goals. Well, and I have stuck in my head somewhere that ideally you should only lose one or two pounds a week. Yes. Is that right? So maybe it's going to take you a year to lose 50 pounds. Yes. You know, unless you're doing other medical interventions, it's really safe to lose one or two pounds a week. And that's for multiple reasons. Part of, of when you lose weight, you're losing fat, but you also a lot of times are losing muscle as well. Um, muscle has a lot of wonderful attributes for our bodies, including keeping our metabolism going, keeping our bones healthy, all of that. So we don't want to lose weight really, really fast because we also lose great muscle. So making sure that you're taking it slow, again, small goals. It's about the journey. It's not about the day to day. So, you know, we need to make sure that, that we take it little by little, attainable I, goals. I actually scowled right to her face when she said it's about the journey, and then I realized, oh, she can see me. Well, because Jen, our producer, and I were talking about we need strength training. Right. Strength training. So it hurts to do strength training. Oh, Tracy, it shouldn't hurt to do strength training. No. Well, the next day it's, it hurts to do strength training. Can you give us a little bit of motivation for strength training? Yeah. Strength training or what we at the Healthy Living Program call resistance training because it really can encompass, you know, quite a few different modalities, quite a few different options for people depending on what they like or don't like. Um, it shouldn't hurt, Tracy. You know, sometimes you can get sore, but that's a really good thing because that's your body building muscle. Well, so, you're trying to do bicep curls with 200 pounds. No <laughs> just trying to do something. <laughs> so strength training, you know, if you aren't familiar or you've never done it before, um, there's great ways to get started. You can take a class. Uh, you can, you know, hire a trainer. That's a really great thing to do if you're not familiar with the gym. The gym can feel very overwhelming. Uh, hire a trainer to show you how to do some things uh, right and well with good form so you can protect yourself. So resistance training is a very important thing, especially as we get older because we lose muscle mass. Bingo. That's, right. See, Dr. Fabian was here talking about menopause last month, and that's what we said. Yeah. 
we really have you to, need to be strong to go middle through that. age. Yeah. Yes. Well, and especially for women, because we have hormonal changes that take place around menopause. Um, we do lose muscle at a pretty fast rate after we go through those changes. And unless we're actively working on maintaining our muscle mass, you know, we can have ramifications from, from losing our muscle mass. Our bones uh, need to be healthy and strong, and resistance training helps with that. Our metabolism, of course. Uh, muscle burns a lot more calories, takes a lot more to sustain than fat, so it's a really good idea from that aspect as well. So, All right, last question before yes. you get back to the gym. Yes. How do you stay motivated? You and I both know any athletic uh, exercise facility on January 1st, it's packed or the second yeah. or the third, and it gradually tapers off. So by the, by mid-February, you're back to where you were because yeah. all those people give up. Why? Yeah. And how how do you stay motivated? Yeah. Well, there's multiple reasons why you know we see that drop-off effect, unfortunately, some of which are because people are setting goals for themselves that are not realistic. Um, they say they're going to go to the gym for an hour a day for five days a week. Well, for most people, that's really difficult to do. So set realistic goals. Do something you like. You know, if you hate running, don't run. You know, find a class that you enjoy doing. Bring a buddy. Make it social. Uh, really, you know, enjoying that time. It, it shouldn't be drudgery. And so I think that a lot of people go and they, they don't like it. And so who's going to continue doing that long term? So Set realistic, realistic goals, goals, make have it social, a buddy, take make a it buddy. social, have fun, have fun with it, try new things. I also, some strength training. Well, I, I also like to reward myself. <laughs> So if I can bribe my kids, I can bribe myself as well. That's right. Take a chocolate with you. <laughs> yes. Sure you it Off. <laughs> it's a new year. Get moving with Danny Johnson, Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program Physical Therapist. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the importance of getting enough sleep. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio and the Mayo Clinic News Network. Not having enough time to exercise is one of the top reasons people tell Mayo Clinic's Danielle Johnson they've given up on their New Year's resolution to get in better shape. Johnson is a wellness physical therapist with the Healthy Living Program at Mayo Clinic and says people should know that every bit of activity counts and not having a lot of time should not be seen as an obstacle. There's many things you can do to incorporate fitness into your world and into your life. And that's a great thing. Johnson has developed an exercise program she says not only helps you get your exercise in during a busy day, but can also make you more productive at work. She calls it the Fab Five. It's a kind of a five simple exercises that you can do in the office to really help reinvigorate yourself. Uh, you know, a lot of studies have shown us that once we get up and move and we're active, we're more productive. She says it can take as little as five minutes to do chair squats, lunges, desk push-ups, chair push-ups, and toe raises. And those things can be really a wonderful thing in just re-energizing you. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Ian Roth. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, most of us know the feeling of trying to get through the day when we're feeling tired after a poor night's sleep. But apparently we're not alone. According to a study released last year by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in three Americans doesn't get enough sleep. One third of us. You know, it's almost surprising that it isn't more. But <laughs> Sometimes it I guess seems is, like that, yeah. <laughs> feeling tired is, is bad enough, but there are, there are bigger problems, health problems associated with a lack of sleep, including an increased risk for heart attack and stroke. So why the sleep crisis and how do we fix it? 
Joining us on the phone to discuss is Dr. Ann Whedon, an epidemiologist and sleep program lead in the Division of Population Health at the CDC. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wheaton. It's nice to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Wheaton, thanks for joining us. Well, it sounds like there are a lot of people in this country who could use a little more time in the sheets, huh? That's what your <laughs> studies have shown. <laughs> yes, we're talking millions of people, yes. And is the number as high as we said, and as your study found, that it's one-third of us don't get enough sleep? Yeah, it's been pretty consistent for the past decade or so that about one-third of adults don't get enough sleep. Are we becoming more aware of the fact that you have to have good sleep health to have good overall health? I hope so. I don't know if um, as many people are acting on it as as they should, but um, I, I think it, the awareness is increasing out there. What does poor sleep health or poor sleep hygiene mean? What? Do, how does it affect our overall health? So um, sleep, good sleep hygiene are just um, habits that are related to sleep. And um, so we're talking things like uh, make, make, making sure that you've got enough time built into your schedule to get the amount of sleep that you need. Um, it's really important to be consistent. So going to bed at the same time each night and getting up at the same time each morning, even on the weekends, and that can be difficult. Um, setting the stage for good sleep by making sure your bedroom's dark, quiet, not too hot or too cold. Uh, turning off or removing televisions, computers, mobile devices, and other distracting or light-emitting electrical uh, devices from the bedroom. And then in the hours leading up to sleep, avoiding large meals, caffeine, and alcohol. Um, actually, most people don't realize that alcohol can actually disturb your sleep. So it might help you fall asleep, but your sleep quality suffers. Well, that's too bad, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, and a nightcap, you don't recommend a nightcap, in other words. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. All right, so you've given us some hints about how to get a good night's sleep. Um, but tell us what uh, the uh, adverse health effects are when you don't get enough sleep. Why, why is the CDC concerned? Well, um, some effects can result after one night of not getting enough sleep. So these acute effects are primarily on your brain. Um, the most obvious thing is feeling sleepy, but it can also affect your mood. It can make you less attentive to your environment, slow down your reaction times, and impair your decision-making skills. And so these can all lead to things like drive, drowsy driving crashes, which could result in injuries or, or death. Um, one, night, one bad night's sleep can also impact your immune system. So, for example, research has shown that if you don't get enough sleep the night before you get your flu shot, they won't be as effective. Hmm. But wow. over time, not getting enough quality sleep on a regular basis may increase your risk for many chronic conditions. And what... And what is quality sleep? I mean, there's some people who say, oh, I only need five hours. I mean, I don't believe them, but that's what they believe. That's what they believe of themselves. Right. Most adults need at least seven hours of sleep per night on a regular basis. So getting by is not the same thing as good health. Yes, you may be able to function on five hours of sleep, but that's not necessarily what you need for good health. Um most adults, and we're talking, you know, 95, 99% need at least seven hours of sleep on a regular basis for good health. So if you don't get enough sleep over time, this can affect your risk for many chronic conditions, including hypertension, obesity and diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, and even Alzheimer's disease. 
So um, you're you're not. Uh, it's like if if you're eating and you're not eating a good diet, you can get by, but you're not as healthy as you could be. Right. So for sleep, so we we're we've been talking mostly about how much sleep you get, but um, the quality of your sleep is also important, and that can be affected by things like sleep disorders. So if you've got sleep apnea, you're constantly interrupting your sleep throughout the night. You you won't necessarily realize it, um, but that's what's happening. And so that can affect your sleep. So even if you get enough sleep, it's not good quality sleep. So you mentioned when it comes to health risks that not getting enough sleep uh, can increase your risk for heart disease, for stroke, for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, does Haven't there been studies also, and maybe it was your study, that showed that it actually decreases your life expectancy? There have been some studies that have uh, looked at that. Our study did not. We were just looking at the prevalence of uh, inadequate sleep in, in the country. But dementia or Alzheimer's, huh? There's been some research done recently looking at this system in the brain that basically functions when you're asleep, that kind of cleans out the clutter of, of, of the day. And um, that may contribute to, to Alzheimer's, the development of Alzheimer's. And clean out the clutter. And you <laughs> yep. need seven hours to do it. I got a lot of clutter. <laughs> Are there any uh, sleeping aids that you recommend? The best sleep aid is the good sleep hygiene. Um, but if you're still having uh, trouble sleeping, um, if you're having trouble falling asleep or you've got a symptoms of insomnia, the best thing to do is um, talk to your physician, especially one that's familiar with assessing or treating sleep disorders. Because um, the most recommended um, therapy for insomnia are behavioral therapies. And um, so this includes the good sleep hygiene, but it also incorporates other things like uh, stimulus control, relaxation therapy, um, cognitive therapy to improve your sleep. And, and those are what the, the initial recommendation for treating insomnia. Do you think it's uh, electronics that have changed, have been the game changers in, with regard to people not getting enough sleep, phones, TVs, computers? they play a significant role, a big role in people not having good sleep hygiene? Well, this has actually been a problem for decades. It's, it's not just in the past few years that it's become a problem. But, but electronic devices can contribute to this issue. So uh, listeners may have heard that light from electronic devices in the evenings can make it harder for you to fall asleep. But they can also disrupt your sleep by keeping you stimulated and making it hard to relax. So if you're notified every time you receive a text or an email or a friend has posted something on social media, your sleep's going to be interrupted. <laughs> I think I heard an anecdote once that we started having sleep deficits when electricity was invented. That, uh, right. We, so are, so yeah. that's more than, than uh, the past you know, few years. Right, right. <laughs> Otherwise, your body starts to go into, well, it's getting dark. It's time to go to sleep mode. And when you've got artificial light then you are prone to stay up longer. Well, there are got a lot of good reasons to get more sleep, eh, Dr. Wheaton? Yes, definitely. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Ann Wheaton, sleep expert at the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? 
You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.